Okay, we're all set and ready to go. As you may be able to tell, I am uh, at a different location. I am now in my own home instead of my office space at my parents' house. So things might look and sound a little bit different, but biggest qualifier is there are young children in the adjacent room and I don't have a door on this. So I'm going to keep the, the child bedtime noises to a minimum, but I appreciate any patience with that if those do make an appearance. And uh, other than that, uh, Robert does have a significant announcement to make about the study. So I will leave that to Robert. Okay. Yeah. The announcement is that after next week, we are going to take a break. The break should be two months, hopefully exactly. And then we should return first week of April. But Matt is going to use the same system as last time to notify people when the Bible study is resuming. And the only reason we're taking a break is because I am taking some classes and I just can't handle work classes and the Bible study all at once. So I apologize for that, but um, I'm kind of at my limit there. Yeah. And I will emphasize to everybody, this is obviously done at Robert's ability and availability. And Robert just does this because he's interested in it and because he wants to, and he he's in it for just the Bible study itself. And so when Robert is realistically does not have the resources or the time to devote to it, I got to be respectful of that and and uh, uh, give him the uh, the grace of a break there. So we'll do that. And uh, of course, we will come back and resume Acts. But I, I just want to emphasize too, uh, if you want a notification in your email inbox, when we do come back at the start of April, head on over to the Bible study page. There is an email. Uh, there's a box to put your email address in. I send out email announcements that way. And I'll be sure to uh, get in contact with each one of you when we're ready to come back in about two months time. But uh, other than that, Robert has this week and next week for us in terms of studies. Mm-hmm. Okay. For this week, I am going to read the few verses because like I said, my my one friend did not get me chapter seven. It just happened that last time I had a different friend who could read for me. So I guess it's this time you just get my voice. But here we go. It's not very long at all. Uh, chapter seven, starting with verse 44. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness, just as God who spoke to Moses ordered him to make it according to the design he had seen. Our ancestors received possession of it and brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our ancestors until the time of David. He found favor with God and asked that he could find a dwelling place for the house of Jacob. But Solomon built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and earth is the footstool for my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is my resting place? Did my hand not make all these things? You stubborn people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you're always resisting the Holy Spirit, like your ancestors did. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They killed those who foretold long ago the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You received the law by decrees given by angels, but you did not obey it. When they heard these things, they became furious and ground their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked intently toward heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. 
Look, he said, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they covered their ears, shouting out with a loud voice, and rushed at him with one intent. When they had driven him out of the city, they began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their cloaks at the feet of a young man named Saul. They continued to stone Stephen while he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell to his knees and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he died. Okay, that is the reading for today, and that is the end of chapter 7. So let's begin with a, a bit of a summary of last week, because it's important so that this week will make sense. Remember that last time Stephen was speaking of the heroes of the faith, those being Abraham, Joseph, and Moses. We could make several connections between them and their lives and their ministry, so to speak, in Jesus. Probably the most prominent connection is that those deliverers were also rejected by the people. So this is evidence, right? This this is an argument that Stephen is making. This is evidence that the Jews' rejection of Jesus does not mean that Jesus was not the Messiah. He was. The prior you know, types of Messiah were also rejected. And moreover, if Jesus is the true Messiah, the fact that he was rejected by the people does not mean that God's plan failed, just like God's plan did not fail with Moses or Abraham or Joseph. Instead, this rejection becomes a mark of a true deliverer. But what really matters for this argument, right, is that Jesus is a greater fulfillment, in fact, the greatest fulfillment of that archetype. That's how the argument is built, is, is kind of from, from smaller to bigger as far as fulfillment. Then another, another point that's important to remember is that Stephen reminds the hearers, the audience, of their sins, and he makes the point that they have been idolaters all the way from the time of Exodus, of the Exodus, when they were in the desert and God was leading them and all that stuff. And so, again, this is evidence that if, if the Jews were sinners before God in the desert, then it is really not surprising that the Jews were sinners before Jesus God incarnate. And again, Jesus, or this situation with Jesus, is the greatest fulfillment of this archetype of the people being sinful before the presence of God. Okay, so now that we have that fresh in our minds, let's talk about this week. This week, we start reading about, well, the tabernacle, the temple, and David. And this is addressing one of the accusations, which is that Stephen is against the temple, and he's really not. He's just trying to put it in, in proper perspective. So some of the key takeaways from, from verses 44 through 53 is that even the greatest king of Israel, right? David, if, you know, if, you, if you're just now kind of learning about the Christian faith and the Old Testament and, and the New Testament, just know that David is the superhero. He, he is the greatest king in the history of Israel. Now, he did do some terrible things, but that doesn't really kind of lower his status, if we want to say it like that. He's still a hero of the faith. Well, not only there, was there no temple when David was the greatest king, but David offered the Lord, let me build you a temple, let me build you a house, and God said no. Instead, the one who gets to build a table, the, the temple, sorry, is the son of David, 
Solomon. But we get this, this very uh, powerful quotation on the part of Stephen where he says, yeah, sure, a temple was built, but recall, nothing can really hold God, right? That's, um, now I want to read, you guys remember this, this heaven is my throne, you know, essentially what can be my resting place? My hand made all things. That's the quotation that is given. So this is why Stephen can confidently say, yet the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. The NET puts a little note by this, which I think is really important. It says the phrase made by human hands is negative in the New Testament. It suggests man-made or impermanent. The rebuke is like parts of the Hebrew scripture where the rebuke is not of the temple, but for making too much of it. Okay. So again, notice that Stephen does not, does not argue for the destruction of the temple or even the abandonment of the temple. What he's saying is God is greater than the temple, right? God is infinite. He's just trying to put this in proper perspective. Well, from, from there, um, the, we get to the final conclusion of this very long speech, perhaps the longest speech recorded in Acts. I think that's the case, but don't quote me on that. Um, I'm not a hundred percent certain on that part. So we've talked about the temple. What is the other charge that was made against Stephen? That he opposed the law. Okay. Now, when it comes to that, what Stephen uses a common rhetorical technique in ancient times, and to some extent is common today, which is to reverse the charge against one's accusers. Of course, this was very unwise in the concept context of a trial. If you expect mercy to insult the judge and jury, it's not the best thing to do. But Stephen is not going for mercy, right? He's not trying to get away with this. He is trying to preach truth. So in no uncertain terms, he says, you say, I'm the one disobeying the law. Who's really disobeying the law? That is you, the accusers. You guys are the ones who are spiritually uncircumcised. You are the guys who murdered the prophets. You are the guys who disobey the law. And this, of course, causes quite the reaction. Now, let's go through those things quickly, but but it's important, particularly there's one key point I want to make, but this idea of uh, circumcision of the heart. Uh, you know, of course, this is, a, this is a figurative way of speaking, the the Jews received circumcision, actual physical circumcision, as a mark of the covenant with God. And so that would be external circumcision. But here Stephen is saying, your heart and your ears are not circumcised. This is something that we find in the Old Testament. It's not a later idea that Stephen is kind of reading into the Hebrew scriptures. For example, in Deuteronomy 10, verse 16, therefore, Cleanse your hearts and stop being so stubborn. Now, that's the NET translation, but the word cleanse literally is circumcise, or it actually spells it out, circumcise the foreskin of your hearts. Translators kind of spare us from that image, and they just say cleanse your hearts. Um, and again, just like the, the NET puts on the notes, I think this is great, they say just as the act signified total covenant obedience, the actual uh, circumcision, so spiritual circumcision signifies more internally a commitment to be pliable and obedient to the will of God. 
uh, God makes it explicit that without the circumcision of the heart, uh, there really is no, no covenant with God. There is no relationship with God. I'll read from Jeremiah. The Lord says, watch out. The time is soon coming when I will punish all those who are circumcised only in the flesh. That is, I will punish the, and it goes through a big group of people. Um, and it says, I will do so because none of the people of those nations are really circumcised in the Lord's sight. Right Now, why am I kind of parking on this idea? It is because this is one of the, I think, more fundamental Christian beliefs, which is that we, we generally affirm that for someone to be saved, they must sincerely believe. Essentially, just out, outside acts, outside behavior will not, will not save anyone. There's all sorts of verses about this in the New Testament. But it's also important to, to notice that this idea was already in the Old Testament. This is not a new idea. Sometimes we speak of Judaism as being based only in outward obedience to rules. And don't get me wrong, that characterization is not completely off, but it's also not completely right. We see verses in the Old Testament about this. But let me give you some of the New Testament verses. Uh, for example, in Romans, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Or if we read from Hebrews, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by the fresh and living way that he inaugurated for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart. Notice, it's the sincere heart. In the Beatitudes, we read, blessed are the pure in heart. And we find this in the preaching of Jesus. When he condemns those who just do good outwardly, he says, for example, this is out of the Gospel of Matthew, um, that there's these people who say, hey, we've prophesied in your name, we've done miracles in your name, we've done all these things in your name. And Jesus responds, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many powerful deeds in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Go away from me, you lawbreakers. Now, notice in, in that verse particularly how Jesus says, only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven right, will, will enter heaven. And then the response from people is, we did things. We did things. So the doing that Jesus is referring to has to be something more than the doing the, that the, you know, the interlocutors are saying, hey, we cast out demons and so forth. And I think that clearly implies this sincere belief. Um, this is one of those things that I think really sets Christianity apart from other religions. Uh, generally speaking, there's there's nothing, no outward thing that can save. Now, I say generally because if you get into discussions about what it is a baptism does and so forth, um, there could be instances in which Christians are going to say that something outward saves somebody. And I don't want to get into those discussions unless somebody brings it up at the end. But even denominations that say that baptism saves in some regard— they would still say once that person grows to be an adult, if they do not have sincere belief, 
that that salvation does not remain. Um, so this is, like I said, a, a key a key idea in Christianity. We see it in Stephen. We see it in the Old Testament. Now we talked about this last time. Stephen is the first martyr. I actually tried googling why we don't call Jesus the first martyr. Like I didn't know if there was some deeper reason that I wasn't aware of, and I don't think there is. It's just. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And we start counting martyrs like after Jesus, for those who follow Jesus. Um, you know, Jesus not included. Um, Stephen being the first martyr is very relevant or very important in two ways. One being the first. So he's what the church fathers called the proto-martyr, proto um, essentially the model martyr. But also his martyrdom is very similar to the death of Jesus. There's a, there's a chart I put in the blog that I did not prepare. This comes from Craig Keener's commentary that compares the, the persecution of both Jesus and Stephen, and the resemblances are striking. But again, for the sake of time, I'm going to leave that there and move on. Now, be, before we get right to kind of the, the climax of the story with, with this prayer that Stephen utters right before he dies— Let's talk briefly about the council's authority to execute someone, the Sanhedrin's power to execute a prisoner. If you uh, joined in during the John study, I talked about it then, you know that local councils did not have the, uh, the authority to execute someone. The Romans took that authority away uh, from the, the local authorities. It had to be done or at least ratified by the Roman figure in the area. Generally, that would be governor, but you know there could be different titles depending on which area you're talking about. Um, so this kind of raises a question. Can we, can we believe this story? Because we know historically, again, that the Sanhedrin would not have had this authority. And there's really three potential options here. Um, one is that there is that essentially the Sanhedrin pronounced death upon Stephen and then they did carry it out. But later they went to the Roman governor. It would have been Pontius Pilate. And actually governor wasn't his title, but whatever. Um, they, they went later and said, hey, we killed a guy. We know that we didn't ask ahead of time, but will you ratify it? And the argument is that the governor clearly did because the, the Jews were allowed to continue persecuting the Christian church all the way into Greek towns like Damascus. Um, so that, that Roman approval would have been required for that. Another option is that the trial and the death of Stephen don't actually happen immediately one after the other, but that Luke essentially summarizing and to some extent confusing two events. Honestly, I think that that option does not take the text seriously, and there are more plausible alternatives. So uh, I, I don't think that most people would vote for that option. The other option, the one that I think is the most likely, is that just like the story reads, there's this trial, and then Stephen is immediately killed, but the, the killing of Stephen is a lynching. It's not officially decreed by the council, it is the crowd that takes justice into their own hands. And then, you know, the Sanhedrin can go, oops, things got out of hand. I'm sure that they were 
devastated by it. Okay. And, and I really think that that is what, what is happening here. We have a trial and then a lynching as opposed to a trial and then a formal execution. Now, as this execution happens, I think, you know, if we look closely, I'm going to argue that there's this great reversal. And by great reversal, I mean that what, what seems to be up is down, what is, you know, what is down is up. Everything that is happening on the earthly realm is actually the opposite of what is happening in the heavenly realm. Those uh, who believe they're in power are really not. Those who are accusing are really the criminals. And the one being accused is really the innocent one. And I'm going to make my point as we go through it. Let's start first with this idea that the accusers, they grind their teeth, like our translation says. The, the literal translation is gnashing their teeth, right? They, they gnash their teeth. This expression could mean anger or frustration, but it is most often associated with anguish, particularly in relation to judgment and hell. Uh, we read about this multiple times in, in the Bible. I, I cite one particular time out of Luke when Jesus says, and, and if you want to see the longer context, it's in the blog, but he says, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God by you yourselves thrown out. So what kind of the, 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 the reversal that I am arguing for here, the irony, is that the accusers gnash their teeth in anger, but those, some, those same people will be those gnashing their teeth in anguish upon true judgment. Then we see that, or then we read that Stephen looks to heaven and he sees God's glory. This is a, a very powerful scene. To, to understand it, first we need to realize that Stephen actually was just doing what would be normal for them to pray. Today, when we pray, normally we bow our heads and we close our eyes. That is just a cultural thing. There's nothing particularly pious about doing that. At the time of Jesus, they would have opened their hands instead of holding them together, and they would have looked up to heaven and prayed out loud, even if they were praying alone. Okay, So Stephen looks up to heaven, presumably because he was about to pray, and then he has this vision. He sees the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. In fact, we read that the heavens were opened. We have seen this language before in Luke, right? When Jesus was baptized, it says, now when all the people were baptized, Jesus also was baptized. And while he was praying, again, when Jesus was praying, they would have been looking up to heaven. The heavens opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him, right? So Stephen is being granted the same privilege of seeing the heavens open up. Um, something that, that is really relevant here is that Stephen does not see God's glory in the temple, he sees God's glory in heaven, which ratifies his argument, right? Stephen was saying, hey, God cannot be contained in one place. Now, uh, most important is, is this idea that Jesus is at the right hand of uh, God Almighty. This, this essentially is what gives hope, right? Um, the, Stephen's vision is confirming to him that 
Jesus really is sovereign. What Jesus said is true. What Jesus said would happen has come to pass because Jesus prophesied when when he was being accused during the passion of of Jesus. If I tell you, you will not you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Okay, so we we can have confidence. Stephen could have confidence that his death was not in vain. That he that because Jesus lives again, Stephen will live again. Um, again, very very powerful scene. Now notice that um, you know Jesus is at the right hand. This conveys authority and exaltation. We've talked about this before, the idea of the right hand. So I'm I'm not going to talk about it at length, but I do write a little bit about it in the blog if you you know if you've missed prior sessions or whatever. But what I do want to discuss is the fact that Jesus is standing; he's not sitting. Almost always, we read of Jesus being depicted as sitting next to the Father, not standing. I can give you examples. That would be like Psalm 110, uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20, 21. Um, but in this case, like I said, Jesus is standing. And, and I, I see again this great reversal that I am describing. Why? I, in Jewish tradition, and we see this in the Old Testament, when a witness would testify they would stand up to do so. So on earth, what is happening? You have the false witnesses, presumably standing up to testify against Stephen, but in heaven, you have Jesus standing up to testify in favor of Stephen. And there's an additional image here being portrayed that is also the judge would normally sit down during the trial, but he would stand up to pronounce judgment. And... Again, on earth, Stephen is being condemned, but on earth, Jesus is standing up to acquit Stephen. So you see, there's this great irony. It's like a Shakespearean play. And, and I think we just read through it kind of quickly and don't realize the, the tension here, the irony that is being built in. Well, when Stephen shares this vision with the accusers, they become enraged and they rush at him, and they cover their ears, and they shout. Okay, what's happening here is exactly what you're envisioning, is, is what kids do whenever they don't want to hear what somebody else is saying, and they're cover, they cover their ears and start just making noise. Okay, that is what the crowd is doing. Why? Because somehow they're being pious by keeping themselves from hearing the blasphemy that is coming from Stephen. Now, Again, you get this, this great reversal, this irony. Stephen just told them, hey, you guys have in, uncircumcised hearts and ears. You're always resisting the Holy Spirit, right? And here they go, literally closing their ears so they cannot hear a prophet from God. And, and they don't seem to catch that irony. Well, and then the punishment comes. Stephen is cast out. Well, our translation says driven out. The more li literal translation would be cast out. This was standard custom. Before somebody was executed, they would be thrown out of the city. They, they would not execute somebody in the city, at least generally speaking. Um, there's also a powerful connection here with the parable of the vineyard, which I've read even in our study of Acts, uh, I think already twice perhaps, 
This is when Jesus, well, I'll, I'll read the parable uh, here quickly. Um, then he, meaning Jesus, began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, leased it to tenant farmers, and went on a journey for a long time. When harvest time came, he sent a slave to the tenants so they would give him his portion of the crop. However, the tenants beat his slave and sent him away. Right? They sent him away empty-handed. So he sent another slave. They beat this one too, treated him outrageously, and sent him away empty-handed. Again, sent him away. So he sent still a third that even wounded this one. And here we go. And threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what should I do? I will send my one dear son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to one another, this is the heir. Let's kill him. So the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Same exact order of events, right? Again, this was standard practice. First, you get him out of the vineyard. Then you kill him. And this idea, this, again, like sort of archetype that Jesus is describing is exactly what happens to Stephen. Uh, it's all of this fulfillment to prophecy. Um, they kill Stephen by stoning. The uh, Stoning was common among Jews and Greeks. The Romans actually had outlawed these forms of punishment for the most part anyways. Uh, but the Romans still had a hard time controlling uh, people, you know, keeping the the mobs from doing what they do and sometimes keeping local councils from doing what they do. They might still condemn somebody to death and just, just take justice in their own hands. Um, stoning carries an additional significance because the, the prophets of God in the Old Testament were often threatened with being stoned. And I give a couple of quotations in the blog if you're interested. In well, and I'll mention this, I did not write about this, but just if you want to picture the scene, normally the way that a stoning was done is they would throw, at least at the time of Jesus, not not in the in the Old Testament perhaps, they would throw the person down a little ravine or whatever, they would throw him down uh, something that'd be maybe six feet tall, and then they would throw big stones from up above, so... Hopefully, just two or three stones would kill the person. That was um, a, a bit more merciful than just like a good old stoning. Um, and the witnesses, they they had to cast the first stones, right? Presumably, this was to prevent or to deter, perhaps not prevent, but deter false witnesses because maybe somebody had to, I was going to make, I did not mean this as a pun, but I was going to say maybe somebody had the stones to make a false accusation, but they did not literally have the stones to throw at the person. Then we read that the accusers, they they laid their cloaks. So what is going on here? They take off their outer garment. Why do they do that? Is this some religious ritual? No, not at all. They're about to exercise quite a bit because they have to pick up heavy stones and throw them at a dude. So they um, take their outer garments off. They're going to be sweaty. They need to move. It's, it's really kind of a gruesome detail when you think about it. But again, it points to this, what I keep calling great reversal. Why? It, at, at that time, somebody who was about to be executed or punished in other ways, lashings, being, you know, beat, beaten or whatever, they would normally be stripped naked first to increase their shame. 
But in this case, they don't do that to Stephen. But who strips down? It is the accusers. So it paints this picture that unknowingly, again, the accusers behave like the guilty party by being stripped. And finally, we get to, to the, the big, you know, crescendo moment here, which is the prayer. But like I mentioned a minute ago, we tend to pray in silence at the time of Jesus. People uh, prayed out loud. Jews prayed out loud. So it, it was natural for other people to hear the prayer, even if, even if it was not directed at them or that was not the intent that they would hear it. This, by the way, might help you make sense of, of that time that Jesus says, you guys pray at street corners, essentially for everyone to hear you. You should pray in private um, because essentially the, the Pharisees, they were praying in, they were praying out loud, like it was common, that, but they would on purpose pick a location with a lot of people. So a lot of people could hear him pray. Okay, and that's what's going on there. But okay, so Stephen prays for two things. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, and Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Well, this really recalls Jesus' prayer on the cross. I'm going to read these out of Luke. Um, in Luke 23, verse 30. Well, actually, let me let me read the, the prayer uh, on the cross when Jesus says, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Right? Now, notice the, the similarity yet one important distinction between the prayer of Jesus and the prayer of Stephen. Jesus says, Father, into your hand I commit my spirit. But Stephen says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. So Stephen already understands Jesus is God. I say this because you, you keep hearing this claim sometimes from people that, that say, you know, the divinity of Christ is, is kind of a late development in the, in the history of the church and all that. I mean, you really kind of have to discount the Bible to to make that argument. And and they do. They do that. They try to do that. I think they're unsuccessful. But there you go. And we find it very early on with the first martyr. Now, also, there's the prayer by Jesus when he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they are doing. I do have to say, and some people are going to hate me for, for pointing this out, but there is some textual controversy about that particular verse. Um it's, it's possible that that particular verse is not in the original manuscripts. Um, but even the scholars who take that approach generally believe that it's historically accurate. It just was not in the very, very early manuscripts of Luke. Uh, Luke is the only gospel that contains that particular verse. Um, but um, again, if we, if we take it to be historically accurate uh, or original, either one, the prayer of Stephen is following the words of his Lord. And I want to close today with this idea of praying for one's enemies. Because I think, that, again, this is really powerful. If, the, if there's two, takeaway, two takeaways today, I feel like one is, is the importance of sincere belief, and two is this. Um, in the Christian conception of love, there's love for everyone, including one's enemies. So uh, we read this in the Gospels, for example. Let me give you two examples. 
This is Jesus speaking. But I say to you who are listening, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. And then out of the Gospel of Matthew, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be like your father in heaven since he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Even the tax collectors do the same, don't they? And if you only greet your brothers, what more do you do? Even the Gentiles do the same, don't they? Not to go into too much detail with that particular verse, but just know that Jesus is using the stereotypes, right? The tax collectors, those were people who were considered wicked. So Jesus is saying, hey, if you only love the people who love you back, you're no better than those wicked people, the tax collectors, right? Same with the stereotype of the Gentiles. If you just love those who, who love you back, then you're no better than a Gentile who were looked down upon. Well, and, the, and there's, there's an even more shocking detail when Stephen prays for his enemies. Jews believed that um, praying for one's sin, confessing one's sins in repentance was key for those sins to be atoned for, right? Like if you wanted to make it to heaven, you had to repent for your sins. And that paired with death to pay for your sin would atone, okay? It, so much so that whenever Jews would, would execute somebody, they would give them another Jew. They would give them an opportunity to make confession just a few feet away from where they were going to be killed. But of course, the expectation was that the prisoner would pray for his own sins. He would say, Lord, forgive me for I have done such and such. Then they're killed. That person can still share in the coming world because they have atoned for their sins. But what does Stephen confess? He does not confess his own sins. He confesses the sins of his opponents. This is just radical. This is so shocking that Stephen is seeking atonement not for his sins, because in this case he has not committed any, but for those of his opponents. It's kind of the ultimate act of, of mercy. Moreover, in stories about martyrs, martyrs would oftentimes pray before their deaths, like whether you read about those stories uh, from Greeks or Romans or whatever, or other cultures, or Jewish, uh, they would pray for vindication that you know, punishment may may rain upon those who are committing the injustice. But in this case, Stephen's prayer is for mercy. This is crucial to Christianity. Um, I, I think this is where, generally speaking, um, Christians go above and beyond compared to other to other religions. Um, and I think sometimes people misunderstand what this means. So I just want to give one maybe one quick kind of personal take, and then I'll, I'll turn it over to y'all. But I, I struggle with this idea for a long time, not with the fact that I should pray for my enemies, but I struggle with what exactly should I pray? What, what is it that I'm praying for? And let me, let me put it this way. Think about what, what if you imagine yourself uh, being being evil essentially or doing something wrong. It, maybe maybe picture a younger self that that was doing things that were not right. What would you pray for that person for that younger self? 
you would probably pray or, you know, what you would desire for yourself. Lord, change me, right? Change me. Please help me to see the error of my ways. Help me to repent. If possible, do so without, without pain, without terrible consequences coming my way. But whatever it takes, do so because I want my younger self to see the light, to become a good person, right? To love you, Lord, to love others. And I think, you know, that that, that is a key part of this idea of praying for one's enemies. It's like, we don't want anyone to be damned. We don't want anyone to go on living in a way that is unfulfilling or, or wicked, if I put it really starkly. Uh, we want everyone to see the light. That is the goal. And, and so that is our prayer for our enemies. Uh, Lord, help them to see your goodness, that they may come around, that they may also live and prosper. So with that, uh, Matt, I'll turn it over to you. Sure. Thanks, Robert. Uh, as always, everybody, if you'd like to contribute to the conversation, just write the word question in the chat and I will bring it in in the order in which we received those requests. As far as my own thoughts, uh, this um, this discussion of blasphemy and the covering of the ears and the la la lying so you don't hear blasphemy, biblically speaking or from a biblical perspective, what is the proper way to handle blasphemy? Should you tune it out? Should you engage with it and argue against it? Should you respond with force to shut it down? What are you actually supposed to do in that scenario? Hey, that um, That's a difficult question. Let me start by acknowledging what the law was in the Old Testament, but I will also preface this by saying, I don't think that this is what we ought to do today. In the Old Testament, blasphemy could be punished with uh, a capital punishment, with stoning, actually. Um, that was when the, the, you know, I think it's fair to say the nation of Israel was being brought up by God. It was important that they were a good representative of God for the whole world. The Messiah would come through them. Uh, God himself was their king. It was a true theocracy. And so that was the punishment for for blasphemy. Um no Christian today would say that that's what we need to do today. Again, keep in mind that Christians say that generally the law has been fulfilled and we're not bound by by the the code that you would find in in Deuteronomy and, and so forth. Um, today, I what I would say is depending the action depends on the context. If the blasphemy is happening in church, I think that sometimes the appropriate action can be excommunication. And that means literally kicking them out of the community. Now, that is not step one. The Bible is very clear. You you ought to address this person one-on-one, -on -one, then you ought to address them with a few more people, then you ought to address them as a congregation, as a whole. And, they, and if they continue to be unrepentant, then you kick them out. But still, you would not engage in violence against them. If the blasphemy is outside of the church, then, like Paul says, who am I to judge those outside the church? I may try to convince them that they are wrong, uh, but certainly uh, that would be out of love for them, not not in any way trying to impose my view on them. And, and I think that that would be a pretty standard Christian answer. Other people can weigh in as well. Okay. So the... Uh... 
at no point it, the la 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 thing is is at in no context the right answer. You should you should engage within the institution and communicate with that person generally. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Just I mean, they're Sorry, trying extra pious. You know, it's like it. we are so pious that we we don't even want to be tainted by yeah. blasphemy. But yeah, no. Well, which, which would seem. I, if you agree on the premise of spreading the message, I know that in this case, their message would be different from Stevens. But if you agree to the premise that the message should be spread, it seems counter to that. Like if you're, if someone says something that is, uh, is against your, the tenets of your faith to refuse to even hear it means you have foregone, you, you've sacrificed an opportunity to convince a person about what is right. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, thanks for the clarification. I have some, other questions I may ask if there's time, but I want to make sure everybody else gets their opportunity. So first up is generally specific. Go ahead. Hello, hello. Um, so I, I took some notes about um, Luke 20 verses 9 through 12. Um, my question, I think, is par partially what three did God send to shepherd his people that were disobeyed? I think Moses may have been one of them. So this, I think this parable is talking about how God sent messengers to try to steer, you know, because God is the the vineyard owner. He created the vineyard. He then gave it over to the people to toil in. They basically, when it came time for them to do what was right, they didn't. But he sent, he kept sending messengers. And I think Moses is the only one I think, you know, was trying, that I can think of. There might be a couple others. Then God sent His Son, the vi the vineyard owner, uh, the vineyard owner is God, to seek the vintage, harvest, glory, praise. His Son Jesus was killed. Then the Pharisees and the Sadducees wanted the power, the pseudo worship towards them. This is why they killed Him, thinking they would inherit the vineyard. The, you know, the vineyard would be God's power. God's the worship would go to them. Second uh, Chronicles seven fourteen. I guess my question is, um, what is it? What do you think would need to happen for them to humble themselves and turn their face towards God? What do they need to see? Oh my goodness. Um, well, if I, if I knew that I would be doing it right, I would be converting Jews right and left. But I, I, I guess to answer that, I will give you the words of Paul, which I'm sure you're familiar with, but um, Paul actually speaks of the message going out to Gentiles, to non-Jews, uh, such that it will make Jews jealous. Um, and so I think the most biblical answer that I can give you is hopefully, you know, uh, Jewish people will see that Jesus really is their Messiah and anybody who's following Jesus uh, is is saved and is prospering in an eternal kind of sense. Um, and maybe that will motivate them to reconsider. Uh, and I think for the last 2000 years, we have we have seen that to be true. And some believe that, of course, there will be a major fulfillment of that in the future, which we kind of got into that last week. Um, but that's what I would say. Hopefully they will see um, in the Gentiles. All right. Thanks, Generally Specific. Next up, we have Cecil. Yeah. Do you believe that uh, Stephen's um, status as a Hellenistic Jew made it easier to kill him? Uh um, that could be. Now, he was being accused by the Hellenists themselves. Um, and so it seems like they were police, policing their own community. And it's, it's, I think it's quite possible that 
because it was a, a community dealing with one of its own, it really was easier to accomplish this because nobody else was going to get involved, right? Like if the Hellenists had gone after a Hebrew or the Hebrews had gone after a Hellenist, now you you have like these dueling gangs, to put it in modern terms. But because it was all within the same gang, it, yeah, I think it's quite likely that everybody else just said, well, they're, they're handling their own people. Let them do whatever they're going to do. Thanks, Cecil. Uh, Denby, go ahead. Yeah, um, just a first quick, quick note about that. Is it uh, that's um, about the the handling your own people? That's that's a very common thing. Uh, there's a famous philosopher named Spinoza, and um, the Jewish community in the Netherlands said, "Told him shut up," and the reason was. Uh, you know, the, the same reason that the Hellenistic Jews did this probably is they were concerned that they were going to get attacked for, you know, being associated with, you know, uh, ideas that aren't approved. It's like, it's already bad enough that they're Hellenists. You know, and the, the fact that we're, you know, the, one of our people is saying these things that aren't approved you know, we don't want any more trouble, that kind of thing. Uh, so, yeah, uh, to to my questions, um, the, they're actually for you, Matt. Uh, the first one would be, um, what initially got you um, interested in in, uh, in studying this? You mean just uh, Bible study in general or specifically? Yeah. Well, um, I actually got into this a little bit on my stream on Wednesday with the guest, uh, coincidentally. And that is because in recent years of my life, I've seen two things um, that I didn't necessarily see clearly when I was younger. Number one, the world has a moral order to it. There's a right and a wrong that is constant. Uh, and I want to know where that came from. What is the origin of the moral order of the world? And number two, um, there are frequent times in my life where I feel like there is a guiding force that compels me to particular action for reasons I can't explain. I would like to know what that is to the extent that the Bible can answer that for me. So those are really the two things. There might be, I suppose there are other tangential reasons that I might not even be aware of yet, but those are the two that drove me to this, to scripture, to seek answers. Those are the main ones. Okay. Um, then my, my next question is sort of related to that is, um, uh, what, uh, up to now, what have you found the most uh, convincing aspect of, of this? And uh, if nothing in particular, what uh, do you think would, um, hit the spot philosophically, so to speak. Yeah. I wish I had the answers to that, to that latter question, because I, it's like, I feel like there's supposed to be this click where clarity suddenly arrives. And it's like that, that's what I was looking for. And now all makes sense. The picture is completely in focus and I can see everything as clearly as I need to. So I, I don't know. That's part of the difficulty of it is I don't know exactly what I'm looking for, but it's kind of like, I don't know. It's, I'm not a gold miner, so I have no experience, but I imagine that's kind of what like mining for gold or panning for gold is like in the old West or something where I have a general idea of what I'm looking for, but I'm gonna have to sift through a lot of things to find it. And I might find some other useful stuff along the way too. Uh, as far as like what, what I find to be the most convincing, what I will say 
there, there are the there's the historical aspect that Robert talks about frequently. The fact that a lot of this stuff is is largely undisputed by historians themselves. I find that to be pretty compelling. But number two, um, and this is one thing that the guest uh, reminded me of that I think is indisputably true, is I just see the practical results of those who walk the walk. People I see who are living satisfied, fulfilled, genuinely happy lives are oftentimes, maybe not exclusively, but oftentimes, if not most of the time, um, living a life of faith. And in particular, at least in my view, uh, faith in Jesus Christ. And I have to, if nothing else, I have to look at those results and acknowledge those results and say, even if I can't explain it entirely myself, if it works, it works. And it's working for a lot of people. And on the other side of that, people who deny the moral order of the world, people who seem to lack that purpose, people who lack faith, again, not always, but commonly are people who lack genuine happiness and genuine purpose. And that's why I appreciated what Robert had to say at the end there too, about, um, about how, what sort of things you should, you should hope for, for your, your enemies or, you know, people you don't get along with or whatever it's, it's so funny to me that that uh, people of faith are constantly portrayed as as hateful or something like that because they have criticisms about this lifestyle or that lifestyle. Genuinely, very few people are actually hateful. They want everyone to prosper. They want people to live lives of purpose and happiness. And it happens to be that that's commonly achieved through faith in in Jesus. And so that's that's become clearer to me over time too. But. Uh, that's a long way of answering your questions. I hope that got to what you were looking for. Yeah, yeah. Well, just recently, I've been thinking about um, the uh, some of the things which you've you've mentioned uh, over you know over the you know over the you know over time about the uh, so um, I think that's an interesting thing that I, I think um, you might want to consider a little bit more, which is. Um, sort of negative evidence it's like um you you remember how, how you were talking about how um the you know, what really changed your mind on abortion was the pro-abortion people yeah. you realize they weren't they weren't they're not you know, right. begrudgingly yeah. pro-choice yeah. yeah no they they're actually like yeah there's nothing wrong with killing babies they want to have parties uh organized around the yeah. concept yeah 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 mm-hmm. <laughs> not to get so too I political like the, but yeah yeah, yeah. Well, no, no. I just, I just meant that as an example of like I, something yeah. where, where, you know, like it, 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 it wasn't, uh, it wasn't even the um, anti-abortion arguments that kind of struck you. It was like, oh my God, these people are deranged. Yeah, and I, that is you know, a major piece of it too. When I say looking at the results, I mean looking at the the results of people who deny these concepts I'm talking about. That could be deny Jesus Christ himself or more broadly deny moral order to the world. They don't live the lives I want to live. The, the when, when I look at people living lives I want to emulate myself, they very commonly are followers of Christ. And that's not a coincidence. That's not just luck of the draw. They're, they're following something. It's a set of principles that lead to success. And so... Yeah, I mean, I, I can't deny that. And I, I find a lot of dissatisfaction myself because I don't want to be convinced by that negative. I don't want to be convinced by, look how awful those people are. I'm not that. I want something affirmative. I want a positive thing that I'm pursuing. 
But the more I learn about this, I mean, the, the more, as I'm saying, it's hard to deny um, the positive effect that it has for so many people. Well, I, I just I, I mentioned that just because like uh, I, I, I have a similar view to you. Um, but I'll tell you an example where where that's become it's it's become stark to me recently, and that is um, for for a long time I um, didn't really like the idea of um, taking the devil seriously. Not because I didn't think the devil did or didn't exist. I didn't really have a strong view on that either way. But I thought I kind of thought well it's it's sort of like a an excuse that people give, oh, the devil made me do it. Mm. But it's like, um, when I see all these devil worshippers, you know, and, you know, like, even in Target now, what was that shirt? Satan respects pronouns. pronouns. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, Satan respects no one and nothing. <laughs> you know? Maybe out of and, convenience, like, just, I suppose. Pursue it to some other end. Sure, yeah. but it's just like the like the 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 and the fact that this is out in the open in this way, it made me see like, oh geez, maybe I better I better rethink that. Like, you know, like totally. again, that's I... kind of not out and it's negative evidence, but in this case it was sort of it 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 like you're like you're saying about the um the kinds of people that you want to be like whose whose lives uh, you think are are well lived, yeah. Um, you know, like there again, like this this kind of negative evidence. It kind of gave me a bit of a kick in the pants to think about, like, well, maybe I should consider seriously the the devil more seriously. Uh, yeah, I mean, to, to kind of borrow the the meme theme, it's like y'all mfs <laughs> need Jesus. I feel like that all the time. It's like. I don't know what's gone wrong here, but uh, that's what you guys need. Some, something is haywire, socially speaking. Um, and and it, 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 speaking of things that are hard to deny, it just, it's become clear to me over time as someone who was skeptical years ago, the farther we've gotten away from our religious traditions, the farther we get away from the church, the more society seems to fall apart. Um, and I, I just don't think that's debatable. So I have to, I have to follow where that leads, but uh <laughs> Thanks in the chat. Uh, Donald says, uh, y'all MFs need Jesus is his favorite confession of faith is a good one. It's not mine. Of course, whoever that lady is who said it, it's all hers. But uh, anyway, um, thank you, Debbie. Did you have a, a closing thought before we move on? Uh, yeah, just, just this, just that it's, it's like, um, uh, there's a, a British comedian, Alistair Williams. And he said, he said, you know, he says, you know, what started to change my mind is that I couldn't help noticing the devil cartwheeling down the middle of the fucking street yeah and he's like hey, hey everybody do you, do you you notice the devil like <laughs> cartwheeling like, yeah that night yeah you uh, know and yeah, yeah. just it's like like we, it's like, we would be oh, wise to to notice such things and stop explaining them away i agree yeah yeah uh, it's the, just like like um i I, I I no longer think that like the devil made me do it is just an excuse. It's like the the, the now people are like, well, the devil made me do it. And it's good that I did it. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I love the devil, yeah, like, I, but I all oh, I also don't yeah. believe in him. But I really love him. That's kind of where we're at right now. But anyway, yeah, um, thank you, man. I appreciate it. 
Uh, yes, just like you, it turns out you cannot what worship the devil ironically. Oh, they they try. There is no such so, thing. They try, but yeah, I'll take your point. Uh, just a couple more requests for comment here. Thanks, Denby. I appreciate it. Uh, hold on. I think uh, uh, Chris is up next. And Robert, I know we're running a little bit long. We're right at the top of the hour, but I got I got a few minutes if you do. Yeah, I do. Okay, go ahead, Chris. Yeah, thanks again for the class and for the opportunity to ask a question. Um, so, <clears throat> Robert, my question actually kind of uh, uh, occurred to me is, is toward the end of when you were speaking, uh, and it had to do with praying for your enemies. And I, and I think there's plenty of good examples of that, right, in Jesus' teaching and so forth. Um, so, sincere question. Uh, in the Psalms, there's quite a few prayers where David is kind of like, uh, you know, kind of like take out my enemies, <laughs> you know, for, you know, using just kind of a, a colloquial, I guess, you know, but there, there seems to be some of that. I mean, I don't mean to overcharacterize, but I just wanted to know your thoughts on that. Yeah. I think those would be called the imprecatory Psalms. Um, could somebody correct me if I'm, if I'm using that word incorrectly, but um, yeah, these these are the, the Psalms that are asking for justice and punishment. And I actually don't think that, that the two ideas are contradictory. I think that they are supplementary um, because Christians also believe in, in justice, right? So I can pray two things for my enemy. And again, put it, okay, imagine, I think this is a helpful uh, thought exercise. Imagine that an alien took over your body and nobody knew that you have been taken over. And then uh, you, like your body, starts hurting people that you love, right? And they don't know that you've been taken over. And so they're devastated by the terrible things that you are doing, okay? What would be your prayer for yourself, right? You would say, Lord, stop me. I Stop me. Don't let me hurt the, the people that I love. Don't let me do these terrible things. Please stop me. By all means, stop me. And in that you see that's not a contradictory thought to saying now with this idea of a younger self saying help him to see the light what hopefully without pain but whatever it takes help him to see the light and and so sometimes when we're overcome with the injustice of the world we're going to be praying one the, the one for justice we're going to say lord stop these evil people stop them but hopefully when we stop and center ourselves we will also say but Lord, show them the light as well. Uh, we also want them to live, to live a life of goodness. Um, and so I think they can go hand in hand. Yeah, I agree. And and I hope I didn't uh, take it too far as characterizing some of the Psalms. You know, I, it's been a while since I read them. But yeah. uh, No, you didn't at all. The Psalms are very graphic. I mean, no. Uh, if we read them on air, they're very much like, destroy these people. <laughs> You're right. All right. Thanks, Thanks Chris. Okay, Patrick, uh, go ahead. Hey, um, so just a quick comment on something you had said, Matt, that kind of resonated with me about like how you felt like this should be like, you know, a moment, you know, that of revelation or whatever that like, oh, I get it now. Because I always, it resonated with me because I always felt like the same way, um, you know, and I never had that. Some people can be like, oh, I was saved on, you know, November 12th at, you know, 10 a.m. That's when I became a Christian or whatever. Never happened to me. Um, but to me, I guess I conceptualize it not as like pulling a curtain back, 
but like building a house, you know, and it, you, you go every day and there's a little bit more that happens every day. And at a certain point you go in and you look around and you're like, wait, this looks like a house now. Um, and so <laughs> that's kind of what happened with me. I, I know it probably happens differently with different people, but, you know, just kind of throwing that out there. Yeah. And it's becoming clearer to me as I progress on this journey too, that, um, that sort of waiting passively for that to happen to me is, is probably the wrong outlook. Um, obviously I want these things to become clear to me and I want that, that sort of revelation, but the whole point of faith is that at some point you will have to make that affirmative step yourself. You will have to jump off that metaphorical cliff into that water on, uh, on the faith that it's deep enough, you know? And I, 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 I'm fairly certain, if not entirely certain that that leap is coming for me. And I think I'm probably closer to that now than I ever have been in my life. Um, but that's, that's the latest, the latest piece in my thought process is like, well, even if you're sitting in the right place, nothing in life ever happens to you when you sit around and wait for it to happen to you. You have to take that, you have to make that affirmative move. Um, and, and so it's, it's, it's on me morally speaking. And it's on me if, if these teachings are correct to choose Jesus Christ, that's something I will have to do. He chooses me. If the teachings are right, do I choose him? That's something I will have to decide. And it's going to take an affirmative step from me. But I, I, I think I'm right about there. I don't know. I don't know what I'm waiting for. I'm still here, man. So I guess in practice, I'm basically doing it already. Um, but yeah, I, I recognize that. And that's, that's something that's changed with me in the last, I don't know, last few months, I would say. Yeah, that's cool. And I guess one thing to keep in mind with that is that, you know, being on the precipice and deciding whether this is true or not, if it is true, and this is something that you need to do to get, you know, to kind of make that leap you know, God is there to help you. You know, if it is yeah. true, then you have the best helper possible. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, there's, there's really not a lot to lose. I, it, not that I want to make the, I mean, I hate to make this like a what's in it for me judgment, but I suppose it kind of, I mean, to the extent we're talking about salvation, I suppose that is the nature of the question. Um, but yeah, it, I guess, I mean, to your point, I, I know very few people who are like, you know, I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And it was it was terrible after that. Like everything just went haywire. My life fell apart. Uh, it was the worst decision I ever made. I don't I don't really know anybody like that. So I'll take your point that it's a low risk proposition, I think. Um, but thank you for the thoughts. I appreciate it. Yep. Have a good night. You as well. Okay, I think I caught up on everybody's request to speak. If I missed anybody, uh, go ahead and chime in really quick in the chat here. I'll grab you. But other than that, I think we're set. Robert, did you have any other thoughts before we wrap up here? No, thank you everyone for everyone's participation. I feel like tonight was great. Yeah, uh, appreciate the the spirited discussion this evening and and uh, and as the, as it happens all the time as well. Uh, for people who joined. Later, I just want to make sure everyone's clear on the announcement that next week will be the final Bible study for the moment. Robert will be taking a two-month break. We'll be back in April, and um, and I will be keeping everybody up to date through the Bible study page. If you want to enter your email address in the contact box that's there, uh, I will make sure to send out information announcements when we resume around the start of April. 
Uh, but again, we will have a study next week on what day is that? The 26th of January, as usual. Uh, that's Friday night, 9 p.m. Eastern time. But I appreciate uh, Robert's effort, obviously. And I appreciate everyone's participation in the study as well. We uh, we hope to see you back here next week for the last study before the break. Have a great night.